Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name's Todd Butler, and I'm your host for Talk Plus Water, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both of those publications are free, and you can find Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusswater.org and the Texas Water Journal at texaswaterjournal.org. So this is uh, May 6th in Austin, Texas at Galaxy Cafe on uh, 10th and West Lynn. And I'm here with my friend Carlos Rubenstein, who is the principal of RSA H2O, an Austin-based consulting firm that provides expertise on environmental activities, primarily related to uh, consultation, assistance, and advice regarding water resource policy permits, projects, and compl- or compliance. And uh, I got through that without too many mistakes. So, Carlos, welcome and thank you for being part of Topless Water. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Always uh, enjoy talking water, water policy with you. Great. I'm looking forward to this. So, so let's start out with your background in water. What's the kind of your first uh, point in your life that you became fascinated with water or thought, boy, I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing something with water? You know, if I think about that, as you know, I I wasn't born in Brownsville, Texas, but I grew up in Brownsville. And the neighborhood we grew up in was surrounded on three sides by Oxbow Lake, or what we call Resacas. Yeah. Yeah, Resacas, from the old meanderings of the Rio Grande. Didn't, I did not know that that's how the city transports water from the river, that it was its off-channel storage. I just thought it was pretty cool. Uh, and, a lot, and just like uh, all the kids growing up there in the 70s, uh, we all would like, you know, in the hot summer months, we all would go to the Resaca and either fish or go swimming. Uh, so that would be the first attachment point. Um, in school, I always had an affinity for science. Um, my degrees in biology, um, that's not a coincidence. Um, and obviously water played a big role in that. And then later in my career with the state, it just uh, got augmented. Gotcha, gotcha. No alligators in Rosacas? We have alligator gars. Okay, okay. And if you've ever been snapped at by one of them, you remember that real quickly. Do they do, they do that? They bite people? They snap at people? I had, uh, when I was first working on water quality with the TCEQ, uh, we were the water commission at the time. We had to do a differentiation of how many different species were in the water because that's an indication of the health of the stream. Right. We were in the turning basin of the Port of Harlingen, right by Rio Hondo. Okay. And the way we captured the species, we did electrofishing. Yeah. Nobody else has a permit to do that, but we did. So you shock the water around the boat, and up comes all the fish. And then you you quantify what kind of species it is and its characteristics, and you you weigh them and you. Uh, you measure them and then you release them back in the water. We we got a hold of one that was, uh, we had an alligator gar that we yeah. caught and he was still stunned and we were measuring him and I made the mistake of laying him out on the measuring table. We were all sitting in the boat yeah. and I let go of its head yeah. and just was flattening out the fence in the back to get a good measurement. Yeah. He woke up and turned right around and bit me right here. Oh my leg. gosh. And I uh, I remember never to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're kind of like swimming dinosaurs. I mean, they've been around for a long, 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 long time. And people love to catch them and fry them up. It's a good uh, yeah. it's a good local uh, dish to have down there. The yeah. catan. Oh, and they they catch them in East Texas too. Um, 
So, uh, even though you know more about alligator gars than I realize, um, it's your career in water that I'm really interested in. So, why don't you, why don't you kind of walk us through, the, you know, how that has uh, developed? Happy to do so. I, uh, you know, I first served out of college uh, after I got my degree in biology. Um, I first served as health director in the city of Brownsville, and obviously we we always dealt with the water quality concerns and the fecal coliform counts and the resacas, but nothing beyond that. I moved from there to the water commission, and while originally I came to the commission as a hazardous waste inspector, uh, my second role there was assisting in water quality studies. Uh, and you remember back in the Water Commission days, uh, you know, we were a highly scientific agency and the focus was 100% on water quality. Uh, that increased the affinity for me and the interest and passion for water greatly. Um, because of the Exxon Valdez, yeah. uh, interesting enough, we lost an individual from, uh, from our office that was assigned to the federal government to, to study that wreckage and how to mitigate the impacts. So I got promoted to be the head of the water quality section um, in the uh, office down in the valley okay. for the water commission. And so for those six years or seven years that I did that kind of work, that was my principal responsibility. Um, and, you know, dealing with eco regions in the area and the uniqueness of the water bodies, it just, the interest in it just grew. I came back to Brownsville, did a couple of other things and served also as city manager. We learned to develop the curb appeal of the Risacas as an attraction to the city. So that also was centric on water. So uh, attraction to the city in terms of like the public using them, swimming in or fishing in them or something? That and, and also to adding, for example, the ability to have like fountains because the fountains that we would install. Oh, to aerate them? Okay. We would okay. aerate them and okay. increase the DO. And by increasing the uh, DO, then we knew we were improving the water quality. A person driving by Risaka may not have cared about that. They just liked the fact that it was an aerator that was throwing up a bunch of water and uh, it was lit neat. at night. Yeah. And so we oh, had it was a, lit at night too. It okay. was lit at night. Oh. And so we did that kind of work. Uh, after a stint uh, with the city, I did return to then the, the uh, TW. Um, the, the uh, TCEQ um, and I returned as Rio Grande Watermaster and okay. that really was a turning point in my career in water. So um, I'm going to get to the Rio Grande water market in, in a minute but tell us a little bit about being the watermaster, what a watermaster does and where they are in Texas. Um, why don't you just fill us in on that? Happy to do so. I think it's interesting to recognize where the water master originates and it originates in spanish water law so when texas was part of the kingdom of spain right the king owned all the land and the king granted you the land so that you could do something good for the crown and with that came the right to use the king's water right gotcha. yeah and so that's their form of allocating water and you have to put it to a beneficial use if you didn't accept the land and the water and put it to beneficial use for the kingdom, then you lost your right. They give it to somebody else. They give it to somebody else, exactly. Somebody had to police that you were doing that correctly. Uh, and so in Spanish law, they came up with a term, the mayordomo de agua. That's what we call water masters today. Okay. The first water master in, uh, program in Texas was established by court action based on a lawsuit that took place 
um, in in the mid fifties and into the into the nineteen sixties. Um, the there was, you know, we had dabbled in different ways of managing water in Texas. Uh, highly focused on English water law rather than Spanish. It didn't work. Um, at the same time, we had signed a treaty. Uh, the United States had signed a treaty with Mexico. We had built Falcon. Mm-hmm. Falcon was constructed in 1954 or so. They closed the curtains. They say it's going to take seven years for the lake to get full. It didn't take seven years. It was actually full in a month. Right. Tropical storm parked itself over it. It was full, and everybody thought... I heard this story, yeah. Yeah, and everybody thought our problems with water are over. We're, yeah. we're fat, dumb, and happy. We're good. Two years later, the lake was empty. And it was empty because of principally, obviously, the drought, but also mismanagement of water. The city of Brownsville um, ordered water from Falcon. Uh, there was a small irrigation district um, in the middle of Hidalgo County, Hidalgo Number 18. Mm-hmm. They took the water. The river went dry. Brownsville never got its water, and that started the Valley Water lawsuit. The court took possession of all water. Uh, is this a federal court or a n- state court? It was a state court. Okay. They took possession of all the water that was in Falcon that belonged to the United States. And the judge vacated all of the water rights that existed on the Rio Grande up until that time below Falcon. You couldn't do that today. Right. But he did. And thank God for that judge because the system he established, we've tried to find a way to improve it. And we've only found very minute ways in which it can be improved. What was his name? Uh, judge Starley, if I remember correctly, and I think he was a visiting judge from San Angelo. Oh, huh. actually. Uh, so he vacates all the water rights. He establishes a court-appointed watermaster, and that watermaster, when the final adjudication of the water rights on the Rio Grande uh, through the courts found their way to being accepted on, under appeal, um, the watermaster survived as a condition of the court turning the program over to the state. Gotcha. Uh, so I ended up being, I believe, the ninth watermaster under that system. Uh, watermasters, uh, they're very unique and they're very beneficial, particularly in areas where water shortages take place. Mm-hmm. They're very good at determining who's, who's supposed to get the water, monitoring those diversions, making sure you're not taking more than you're entitled to, making sure that the river is actually run efficiently so we don't waste any water. Um, and so that's part of the tasks that were before me. At the same time that I was watermaster, uh, and also doing market transactions, obviously. In yeah. other words, you don't get in the middle of brokering it, but you have to approve those transactions. In, in, in the middle of that normal process of being watermaster, we had a small problem with Mexico not complying with the Rio Grande uh, Treaty, water sharing treaty. And it fell uh, on the watermaster program, and I was fortunate enough to be assigned to the Texas negotiating team. And we ultimately found a solution to that problem uh, as well. Um, and so that great, you know, enhanced my understanding of water and water rights and what it means not to have sufficient water. You're getting a PhD in water. Uh, the hard way. Right. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so kind of backing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You look at all the other rivers in Texas, and um, yes, there are <coughs> some rivers that we share with other states, um, uh, but not it's not as much of an issue, I think, as the Rio Grande, where you've got Colorado upstream, and then New Mexico, then you get to Texas, and you're also sharing water with the Republic of Mexico. And so you've got a state compact, 
And then you've got a treaty, the 1944 treaty, and then there's a 1906 convention and some other other things Correct. that all that are all you know involved with the management of that river. And I look at that and I think that is scary. That's got to be really, really complicated. But but maybe it didn't. Maybe you can simplify it for us, or at least help help the average person understand how that all works together. Excellent question. I'm glad you did that because I failed to mention one of the key things that the judge did as part of this case. Um, it, it, it is complicated. Water's complicated anywhere you right. deal with it, right? What the judge did as part of the case is not only did he vacate the existing water rights at that time, he reissued rights to a lesser amount. Uh, I think originally there were like 3,200 claims to water, and I think he authorized around 1,300. 1,300 out of 32. Yes. Okay. Um, But the other thing he did that's significant that makes the system work so effectively is he got rid of prior appropriation. And for folks that are listening to you and me today that don't know prior appropriation, it's real simple. It's the way Western water law is governed. If you and I have a water right and my water right is older than yours, it doesn't matter what I'm going to use it for. It doesn't matter what you're going to use it for. The older right is senior to the younger right. And so those issues, so again, those issues um, uh, end up either incentivizing conservation of water and managing the system better, or they don't. The judge decided that a priority of use system would work better. Uh, And again, that's also in keeping with Spanish water law and taking the best of it. I wish other parts of Texas were the same way. You know, the Edwards Aquifer had priority uses, and they, and uh, yeah, I'm not going to say who did it, but but uh, <laughs> they a group got together and had that stricken, you know, out of the act at one point. But you know, I I looked at that, I always looked at that, and I thought, well, that makes sense. I mean, it, yeah, it it does. And and with the priority of uses, what the judge also did. And I'd like to hear how, how this was managed in the Edwards. And yes, we're dealing with groundwater and surface water. But anytime you do something with water, you lose water. Right. Every time you move it, you touch it, you're going to lose some. The judge established three priorities. The first was municipal priority. And we can all understand that. If you don't have water, you create a huge public health emergency. Right. The second priority wasn't agriculture. The second priority was the system. Okay. How do you set aside water to preserve the integrity of the system. How do you account for and cover the losses of evaporation at the lake, of losses to bank storage and evaporation from conveyance down the stream? Does that include, uh, you know, I guess what would be considered environmental flows or for the Rio Grande? Not no, the we got that wrong in the Rio Grande like we did in other parts of Texas. And by the way, it was uh, thank you very much for uh, publishing our light, latest paper on environmental flows. People need to go to texaswaterjournal.org and read it. There's a plug. I plugged it for there you. There you go. I appreciate that. Well, we, we, we're pretty proud of it. But, you know, on that issue, Texas was late on the game in all rivers, including the Rio Grande. Right. And recognizing the water for the environment was important. And so, no, the system water did not account for environmental flows. But it did account, in a way, uh, for the carriage water. You know, water rides on water. And so to get, deliver water officially down the river, there has to be water in the river to begin with. Yeah. The systems, the operating reserve, which is called, uh, kind of carries that. And by inference, if you're keeping a river charged, 
then you are protecting its ecosystem, right? Right. But it wasn't designed for that. It was for efficient uh, use. The third priority that the judge established was agricultural uses. Here's the other thing the judge did. Because we're gonna operate the system this way, yeah. municipal water is guaranteed. So if a city in the Rio Grande Valley runs out of water, yeah. it isn't because there isn't water at the lake. It's because they don't have enough water rights. There'll always be water at the lake, always. Okay. The system is geared to respond to that. The system will always be protected. Agriculture ends up taking the hit. So if there's excess water, they're the last ones to get water. Okay. If there's a shortage of water, there's the first ones to get curtailed. So what the judge did is says, look, in times of plenty, if, for example, you have a water right for irrigation of 1,000 acre feet, we're going to let you store 1,410, 141%. You cannot use it in a year. You can only use up to 100% of your value, but you can store water that is assigned for you to carry you from the times of plenty to the times of drought. Gotcha. So if you look at it in totality, this system, and I've always said it, is drought driven and drought responsive. It is all based on water in storage, not run of the river. And that, I think, uh, works out really well. And so this, I guess, is where, uh, you know, you've, you've outlined the priority uses with ag agriculture being the lowest priority. This is where the uh, water debt issue maybe comes into play because, you know, if there's if there haven't been the kind of deliveries required under the treaty from Mexico, it's the irrigators who are kind of feeling the brunt of that. And that's why, because they're the lowest priority, and so that's why they're, you, when you hear about the 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 debt, it's it's coming from the 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 ag side. First and foremost, yes. They, yeah. Anytime there's a shortage in the river, whether it's Mexico's lack of compliance or drought or a combination of both, <coughs> agriculture is the one that, that suffers first. That deficit from Mexico though got so bad that just like you and I talked about, you need water to write on water right. in the river. You need water to write on water in the diversion canals. And it got to the point where even the irrigation districts didn't have enough water to lift the water that was required for the cities and convey it to the cities. Their canals are mostly, they're not uh, like concrete or, or anything like that. So Those, it's, yeah. it's going out the bottom. And, yeah. The losses in the canals can be up to 30%. The, there's been a lot of improvement that's been done through time, but certainly not to where you would want it to be. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, so you also mentioned earlier uh, the issue of um, Amistad and Falcon. So above Amistad, I guess Amistad is upriver of Falcon. Mm -hmm. That's and, correct. And so uh, I always get those two, their position mixed up. It's, I mean, I know, I know they're both over there, but I'm like, I can't remember which one's north. <laughs> um, and so above Amistad, it's essentially prior appropriation. <coughs> That's correct. Above Amistad, we call it the Texas Upper Rio Grande, and that is still the prior appropriation system. Once water enters Amistad and below, and Amistad is by Del Rio, yeah, uh, and, and uh, obviously Falcon is by Zapata. Once water enters that system, then it is all prior it, it priority of use, and it is based on the combined storage for the U.S. at both of those reservoirs. So it isn't like Amistad is only supposed to meet the needs of the middle Rio Grande between Amistad and Falcón. Amistad and Falcón are responsible for the needs from Amistad all the way to the mouth of the Gulf. Gotcha. So mm -hmm. now I'm gonna I'm gonna 
I'm going to talk. I want to ask you more about the water market. Sure. And I want to ask you, uh, you know, a little bit also about a few other things. But but let me go. Let's go back to your career. Okay. So you're with TCQ and you're the water master. And then you go on and do some other things. So why don't you tell us about that? So because I don't know any I don't know anybody who has your your career, you know, track. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the story away. I don't know anybody who, you know, really is chairman of the water development board who's got the kind of like hands-on water experience that you have. I mean, maybe there's somebody and I've just forgotten or you know, but I'm like, ah, that's pretty unusual. That's pretty rare. It I. I've been blessed and, and I'm honored to have and humbled to have been able to, to achieve what I've achieved so far in my career on water. Because we were able to, and, and yes, let's absolutely come back and talk about the market because that's another thing that the judge got right uh, as well. So let, let's, let's come back to that. Okay. But how I progressed at the TCQ, we already talked about the water debt. Uh, when we solved the water debt issue, obviously we had to report to Governor Perry as to what the settlement was. and. He liked it. He had been very involved in understanding the issue and authorizing us and giving us the flexibility to come up with a solution. I've always appreciated that of him. Uh, I think that once we settled the debt and there was openings for to be a commissioner at the TCQ, I think I remained in his eye, and, I, and I'm thankful for that. In the interim, though, I still kept doing the other things that... I was assigned to do as part of being a staff person at TCQ. I was also regional director for Harlingen, regional director for Laredo, and area director for all environmental programs along the border for the TCQ. Ultimately, I served as deputy executive director, who's the chief operating officer of the agency. Uh, and all of that I'm extremely proud of. There was a, there was a uh, position that came, not a position, but a vacancy that was coming up on the commission and Governor Perry appointed me to be a commissioner at TCEQ. So, uh, just for our listeners who are not in Texas, and maybe some who are, uh, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality is kind of, I guess you'd call it the state EPA. And it's it's actually like one of the largest, isn't it? One of the largest like environmental agencies in the country? or At, at, at that time, yeah, that's a very good point. At that time, in the in the early 2000s, it was second only to EPA itself. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so then you go from there to the Water Development Board. This is what I've never, I don't, I'm wondering, has there anybody who's ever been, you know, a commissioner on the Water Commission and also a, you know, a, a board member at the Texas Water Development Board? Are you the only one? It come, one comes to mind, certainly. It's the reverse. Um, Kathleen White, who ended up being oh, chairwoman. that's right. She was at the board. She was a board okay, member at the board. It. That is correct. Yeah. And she was a joy to work with. Uh, she was deeply involved in resolving the water debt as well. So now uh, let's go back to uh, the Rio Grande. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the market. We're going to come back to the market and talk a little bit about the, the water debt. Um, there also is, uh, of course, some litigation going on between Texas and oh, New Mexico sure. and Colorado. Can you tell us what that's about? Absolutely. Uh, I was definitely involved in that uh, as well, uh, and part of the team that decided that it was time, unfortunately, to file a lawsuit uh, against New Mexico. So let's let's just backtrack just a little bit 
for the folks that are listening to us. The way states share water is through compacts. It is more than an agreement. It is actually, it has the constitutional uh, um, uh, impacts. If you don't have a compact, then the Commerce Clause of the state of the U.S. Constitution comes into play. So if you want to resolve those disputes, you enter into compacts, and they're very common throughout the United States, and they're also common to have disputes. Because they have a direct constitutional impact, any dispute of a compact goes directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. You don't have any trials before it. You don't have any appeals before it. You don't let it escalate. You go directly to the Supreme Court. And so if anybody had been following what had been going on between Florida and Georgia, they would have seen, hey, here's the Supreme Court's appointing the special masters, you know, who are trying to resolve this issue between these two states. And then they send reports to the Supreme Court. You know, they kind of hold a trial, more or less. Uh, and then the, they send a report to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court makes a decision about it. That, that's, that is exactly the way it works. Uh, it has served the states very well. The special master is a trier of fact. Uh, he develops a report, and, and then it's up to the justices to determine and retain the jurisdiction of the implementation on how to resolve the issue. We have five compacts, Right. We have the the, you know, the Canadian, Canadian, we have the, the, the Pecos, um, and and the Rio Grande. We have sued three times on a comp- we've never been sued, but we have sued three times uh, on on a compact dispute. We sued New Mexico on the Canadian, and we won. Then we sued New Mexico again on the Pecos, and we won. And that one included, you know, penalties. Um, to, to, on behalf for Texas, uh, I think it was $14 million, aside from all the actions that New Mexico had to do. We warned New Mexico not to vacate an agreement that we had arrived at on the equitable distribution of Rio Grande waters at and below Elephant Beach as part of the 06 convention that you mentioned. Yeah. The New Mexico Attorney General decided that he didn't like that settlement, that the two irrigation districts, the one from New Mexico and the one from Texas, had entered into, and so he sued to vacate it. And at that point, obviously, water for Texas under the compact was threatened, and we ended up filing a lawsuit in 2013, uh, and it's going to be heard, I believe, this year at the Supreme Court by a special master and then ultimately Supreme Court. And I'm confident that unless there's a settlement, that Texas will win that case. The crux of the case is this. In Texas, uh, surface water is owned by the state, groundwater is owned by the surface land owner. In New Mexico, groundwater and surface water are both owned by the state. Like that's the like way everywhere most, else. Yeah, right. Right. Like everywhere Just else. Add that in. Okay. Yeah. You. Good point. Um, so that means that New Mexico is a permitting agency for groundwater extractions. And if you look at what occurred along the river between Elephant Butte and the state line uh, between the 50s and now, over 3,000 wells were punched into the ground immediately adjacent to the Rio Grande. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that you are diverting Rio Grande water. So these are these are just to, so I, I'm going to describe this for people who may not be totally familiar with it. Um, Elephant Butte Reservoir in New Mexico, which is we'll talk about this in a second. It's not near the Texas border, really. 
and it, but it is the point in which uh, you know the dispute is is Texas getting its water if it's just released from that reservoir or if it has to get to the border with New Mexico and in between Elephant Butte and uh, Texas um, on the Rio Grande you have agriculture which has drilled shallow wells into the alluvium of the Rio Grande and they pump that water out which you know really is surface water we think but you know they think maybe it's groundwater and they're using it for pecans and, and things like that which use a lot of water and this is a weird little aside but you know I, I was invited to China in 2019 and went over there and talked about water disputes and things at this conference and my host was very interested at uh, two universities but one was the Hohai uh, University School of Law in Nanjing and of course they were very very interested in the Rio Grande and its management and how uh, the uh, IBWC International Boundary Water Commission works between Mexico and the United States and all that and you know I learned when I was doing my research before I went over there that the pecans a lot of those pecans in New Mexico go to China hmm. and they have a you know they you know it's a delicacy where they but they only like certain pecans of a certain size and shape and they dip it in something some kind of liquid which you know I thought was kind of interesting but 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 so the home audience knows pecans use a lot of water I mean you're flooding this big field orchard, right? And it's got to be so deep, and I guess it lasts so long. That's a lot of water to do that. And, and, you're to, you, and it's a perennial crop, right? Um, but you are 100% correct. Again, New Mexico can use its water how it sees fit, but you're not supposed to impact the downstream user, particularly when you have a compact that requires a delivery. Let's just back up a little bit. I'm glad sure. you mentioned uh, Elephant Butte. Why was Elephant Butte constructed? It was constructed by Bureau of Reclamation, as it did other reclamation projects, to develop the West. Right. Elephant Butte was specifically constructed to be able to support agriculture in the Elephant Butte Irrigation District in New Mexico, downstream of Elephant Butte, and, and the El Paso Irrigation District Number 1, which is just across the state line in Texas. Right. That is the whole purpose of that project. So that means we're entitled to our water, New Mexico's entitled to theirs. What occurred is as more and more wells were drilled adjacent to the Rio Grande, and they were extracting what you and I call the underflow yeah. of the river, where as you described, it permeates into the banks and you can extract it, but it's really surface water you're extracting. Segments in the river became more losing segment. So what is a losing segment is? You're going to lose water. Right. You can have either gaining or a losing segment in a river. Or a losing segment loses water, as the term implies, to evaporation, bank storage, and groundwater recharge. Right? Right. A gaining segment is one where actually groundwater is percolating up yeah. and contributing to the flows. We noticed, obviously, that through time, that segment of the Rio Grande became, had a greater lose potential right uh, or became a greater losing segment um, and what was occurring is for Texas to get its water and make up the difference more water had to be released out of Elephant Butte and if you look at where Elephant Butte stands it's today, always like it's always it's, every time I look it's like 5% full or so it's like Lake Mead before people start talking about Lake Mead I mean, it, it, you got it that's a great example of it 
and, and, and it was done, unfortunately, at Texas's expense, right? And you so, mean the Bureau building it at Texas expense, or no? It was the Texas expense of the water was depleted, not to the benefit of Texas, but to the benefit of that segment within New Mexico. Okay, right? right? Because they got a double bite at the apple. They got to divert New Mexico state water, then they got to divert groundwater that was really surface water from the Rio Grande that impacted deliveries to Texas. Right? right, and that means that they had to release extra water from the reservoirs every year to try to push it to Texas. Didn't necessarily make it. Yeah. All of that means that we got less water than we were entitled to. Now I got to ask you this: There's nobody from New Mexico here to defend themselves, so um, I, I've always wondered why on earth did Texas agree to have the measurement made at Elephant Butte instead of some measurement on deliveries being made like at the border i mean the deliveries are actually measured at various points the point of compliance is elephant butte right yeah. but how many river miles is that from oh i don't i don't know i'd be taking a guess i would yeah. probably say it's because uh, i have flown it several times it's probably 90 miles or more something like that something like that in uh, 90 miles in new mexico before you get to texas right that's correct yeah or so um, but it, you know, as part of the compact, the two states, actually the three states, because Colorado is part of this compact, right. uh, they agreed where the points of compliance were, what the measurement points would be, what contributions from interbasin transfers would amount to, what credits you would get, um, and, and how the final accounting would be done. Beca- in, an, in an attempt to not have to go to the Supreme Court, Again, this, the, the two irrigation districts entered into an agreement, I believe, in 2008 uh, to, to say, look, let's just make Texas whole, not all the way back to the 50s, but somewhere in the 70s to now, and let's set up a system where your over-diversion of those flows don't impact Texas. It was working well. Uh, but then again, unfortunately, New Mexico decided to vacate that agreement and uh, here we are where we are, and again, I think we're going to win. And so this is going to be heard in the Supreme Court, what, this fall or something? Or the, uh, My understanding is that the special master will hear it uh, between now and the end of the year, okay. unless there's a settlement, um, and, and then it'll go to the Supreme Court. Here's the irony. What are we talking about? We're talking about surface groundwater interaction right, right. as the cause of the lawsuit. Right. We are recognizing that surface and groundwater yeah, are interconnected which, which once you get on the other side of the border right texas is like what exactly the two shall never meet it, it, with, but they do they right right and, and they do both ways it isn't always groundwater contributing to the flow of a stream yeah it also means the stream is contributing to recharging the groundwater right we recognize it appropriately in the lawsuit and we're right in having filed it we need to recognize those that those interactions also occur in texas right Right. Someday. Someday. So let me just say this. Uh, little known fact that, that most people uh, in Texas probably don't realize, but um, snowpack, you know, affects the Rio Grande. And that is the only river, I guess, in Texas that is affected by snowpack, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, that is the only one. Up in Colorado. And so when our mutual friend Robert Mace has does his outlook uh, for Texas water, you know, he's got a graphic that, that looks at, you know, what is the, that um, portion of the Rio Grande's watershed in Colorado look like. Um, so go ahead. 
Yeah, no, you look. If you talk to the irrigators in El Paso, they are absolutely keenly focused on what that snowpack is every year, because that is their recharge. And that, if you told, if you were down at the mouth of Rio Grande talking to somebody, now you're talking to Elon Musk or something. You say, "Hey, by the way, you know, we didn't get a whole lot of snow in Southern Colorado." And so I'm worried about a water supply. They might not know what you, they might think. What on earth are you talking about? But that, that's a, that's an ex- excellent point. You, you know Herman Sedemeyer. He's one yeah. of our partners in yeah. RSH2O. He and I, uh, and he was actually the engineering advisor on all of the compacts, including the Rio Grande, when we filed a lawsuit uh, on, on behalf of the state of Texas. He and I uh, often get asked to give presentations on the Rio Grande, and we always refer to it as two rivers, and people start scratching their head. The reality is that on paper, we have divided the river. We've divided the river at Fort Quitman. We have allocated all of the water from, that originates in Colorado, just like you said, from the snowpack, utilized by Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas, all the way to El Paso, and we call it zero at Fort Quitman, Texas. For people that don't know for, where Fort Quitman is, don't worry, you're probably not the only one. Uh, it's about 80 miles downstream of El Paso. Okay. Uh, if you blink, you probably will miss it. I've been there because it is a point of compliance. It is the end of the 06 Convention Treaty with Mexico and the states, and it is the beginning of the 44. There is a point of contention under the 06 Convention, we agreed to give Mexico 60,000 acre-feet of water for irrigation purposes uh, at Ciudad Juarez on the Rio Grande. In return, Mexico agreed to waive all rights to water below El Paso to Fort Quitman. The 44 Treaty doesn't speak to those waters at all. Okay. My contention and that of the irrigators in the Rio Grande Valley is that all of the water spilling at Fort Quitman belongs to the United States. Unfortunately, because of a counting decision made by the International Boundary and Water Commission, they actually split it 50-50, and they give half of it back to Mexico. So at Fort Quitman, you know, I don't have a map in front of me, but are we looking at something like the Conchos coming into the Rio Grande? Oh, way or above or that. It's way above that? Okay. Yeah. You know Is where there another tributary that comes in there? Or is that, why, it, is it, why is it Fort Quitman? It, because that's where the 06 Convention ended. Okay. There is a measuring point there. Um, do you, you and I are familiar with the Rio Grande. We, we know where the Forgotten River is. Yeah. Well, the Forgotten River is that stretch of the Rio Grande that goes dry. And if you go and you stand out there, you're not even going to determine a river channel. You're not going to see bed and banks because we've depleted the flows that much. It looks like that out near Marfa right now. I saw a photo. Well, yeah. if you hang a left at Marfa yeah. and you go straight to the river, you're going to run into four equipment. Gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. So um, the water market, going back to the water market, uh, let me ask you, before we talk more specifically about the Rio Grande again, um, the water master idea, you know, I've, of course, I've spent years working on the Guadalupe River, and, you know, we had a water master who also managed the Nueces and the San Antonio River, which is a tributary of the Guadalupe. And so... Um, you know, I always thought, boy, everybody should have a water master. I mean, and I, you know, that is not the case. Not everybody does in Texas. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, I've always kind of wondered about that. They just don't want to pay for the, the fees or they're just worried about having the water master interfere with things that they're doing. They think is going to 
be the result of having a water master, but but tell us why we all need water masters. And also, I mean, isn't I mean, how could you really have a thriving surface water market without somebody like a water master? It, it well, you you hit on all the right points, and you're 100 percent correct. And what makes it worse is how can you have a water market when you don't even measure the diversions? So let's talk about that. You can, you can develop a water master program in Texas a uh, couple of different ways. We already talked how the Rio Grande got developed, court action. The lawsuit resulted in the Rio Grande water master. I can make a case that when the Texas water code was being written, the intent was to end up with water masters in more areas than where we have them. It granted, the second way you can create a water master is a TCEQ, or which was the Texas Water Commission at the time, the de- de- designated water divisions of the states, of the state within the basins. And then after it determined the water divisions, it could come back and whenever it felt that a senior water right. Sorry about that. Now that was a mail truck. I can see now why they want electric mail trucks. That was loud. That was loud. Sorry about that. Yeah, boy, that's tiny too, and it's really loud. Sorry, go ahead. So anyway, the second one you can create a water master is under the action of the Water Commission at the time, or now the TCEQ. If it determines that a water division of the state that is suffering shortages and senior water rights are threatened, on its own volition, it can create a water master. That's pretty much the way the Water Master Program you described got created, the South Texas Water Master Program. A third way of establishing a Water Master Program is where our third Water Master Program, how it got created, the one on the Concho. Under the Water Code, if 25 water right holders filed a petition and claimed that they're, because of the way the stream is being managed, that their water right is being threatened, then the TCEQ has to have a hearing and based on its findings can establish a water master program. That's the way the Concho was going to be developed. It got to the goal line and the legislature wanted to have its say in creating it and intervene at the last minute and actually created the program legislatively. If you go to the last water master program that was created in Texas, the one on the brasses, that was a full-on petition and action by the TCEQ. Not during this sunset review by the commission, of the commission, but the one that occurred uh, back about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, the TCEQ was charging continuously monitoring uh, the other areas of the state where the water master doesn't exist, and if they determine that there's one that's needed, uh, then they are to recommend one. They have yet to recommend one on their own, a lot because of the reasons you just stated. We don't want to create a new funding or a new fee structure. We don't want to create greater oversight. The problem that I see is that in the rest of Texas where you don't have a water master program, diversions are reported under the honor system. In a water master area, in a water master area, all diversions have to be metered. That's not true in the rest of Texas. Okay, okay. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I've talked to some folks uh, associated with the Murray-Darling Basin uh, water market in Australia, and that water market sounds a lot like the Rio Grande in many ways. I mean, it's based on stored surface water. No run-of-the-river rights, really, no groundwater associated with it. 
Um, and so that element seems to be pretty similar. But I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, if, if that is what's created, been part of the creation of this watermark on the Rio Grande, does that mean that we're not going to have any more watermarks like that in Texas? Because, you know, you get prior preparation everywhere else. And I don't know, maybe a lawsuit might happen during a repeat of the drought record and maybe it maybe a judge is forced to come up with some alternative but it seems hard to believe that you would replace the prior appropriation elsewhere but maybe i don't know what do you think i i don't see us replacing prior appropriation where it doesn't exist so let's talk about a couple of things that actually add value to water because first you to have a water market you have to have a couple of things you have to have a, a predictable and reliable way of knowing who owns the water to begin with. Right. Prior appropriation gives you that. Yep. So does priority of use in the Rio Grande. You have to have a mechanism on how water rights can be exchanged. That exists in prior appropriation. It right. exists on the Rio Grande. Um, in the Rio Grande, the reason the system works better is the priority of use itself. So the, in the court decree and the way the program is managed, water cannot cross uses. You cannot sell irrigation water without converting it first to municipal for a municipal purpose. Municipal has to sell to municipal, agricultural or irrigation has to sell to irrigation. Municipal is guaranteed. If you want to buy an irrigation water right and convert it, mm -hmm. you can do that in the Rio Grande, but it's not a one-for-one -one conversion. It's like you lose, like, what, 50% of it or it, something? In or? some cases, you can lose 60%. Okay. So and under, the prior, under the priority of use system that was established, we ended up with two types of irrigation water rights, Class A and Class B. Yeah. If, and it had to do with how you could prove ownership at the time. If you have a Class A water right, and you convert it to municipal, it's, it converts it to half its value. The benefit to the end buyer and where, the and where the value is, is that then that water then becomes guaranteed. Right. Right? If you have a Class B water right, it converts at 40% of its value, but it, it then immediately inherently obtains that guarantee. Uh, I think what we, where we fail um, in Texas and in an under prior appropriation, not just in Texas, is we first need to value water appropriately. One, and then once you value the water appropriately, then we need to protect the ability of the transaction to result in its intended benefit. In the Rio Grande, because it's a stock resource, it's water from storage, it's easy to protect that. Right. In a run of the river right, first in time, first in right, not so much. But it doesn't mean it cannot happen. It absolutely can. Here's where issues like the junior provision in moving water from one area to another, um, well intended. It was actually intended only to be able to pass Senate Bill 1 back in 1997. Right. Um, it actually is counterproductive to the establishment of a market because it devalues water. It devalues water two ways. Uh, it devalues it for the end buyer because whatever water they end up buying will be the first one that get cuts off. Right, less and reliable. It, less, re least reliable. And it devalues water for the area of origin because you don't get to have the discussion of what it means to move that water that is within this part of Texas, move it somewhere else. How are you gonna make the area somewhat whole for having moved that resource where it's needed? So to add just a little bit to that, um, you're 
your city A and um, you want to buy water from a river in East Texas and all of a sudden the junior water pipe provision you know goes in effect when you do that and so that maybe you're buying a senior water right and so maybe it's the most senior in the on the river now if you if you transport it in an interbasin transfer to your basin where you are to for to meet your your needs it's the most junior water in the basin of origin and so you you may not be able to rely on having it when you need it most. And you built this expensive pipeline, which you know, people forget the infrastructure is the big cost. I mean, you can't do a project without the water, but it's not the biggest cost. And so you got to build this big pipeline and maybe pump stations and all those things. And, you know, who's going to make that investment if they're not sure they're going to get the water when they need it through that pipeline, right? That is correct. One of the things that comes to mind as well, hearing you describe that process and what we've been talking about, is there is another court action that actually added value to water. It was a court action where at the TCQ, we got sued by the Farm Bureau, and I said we because I was part of that commission. Yeah. And I was part of the commission that made the decision that we ended up getting sued on and lost. Yeah. I can tell you that if we were back in 2011 and, and we would have to make the same decision based on the same set of circumstances, we probably would make the exact same decision. It doesn't mean, mean that it was the correct one. We just didn't have a choice. Other Western states, let's talk about prior appropriation. You know, tell, let's, uh, you're talking about the Farm Bureau case. Now tell them what the decision was you made. So Okay, so under... We had the 2011 drought, and boy, this year's starting to look a lot like yeah, 2011, right? Droughty. Yeah, it's getting ugly. Uh, and we had a senior water right call outside of a water master area. A senior water right call, as you and I have been talking about, is somebody has the most, the oldest right. They are concerned there's not enough water. They make a call that protects their reliability to get the water, so they're entitled to get every drop of their water before somebody else that's junior to them gets it. They established the senior call. It was incumbent upon the commission to honor that call because that's what the water code says. When you make that decision, you are to cut off junior water right holders, those that have a younger right. We were faced, this was outside of Watermaster area. We've never had to make those decisions before. And in looking at the basin, we determined that among the junior water right holders, we were gonna to have to cut off our other cities that didn't have an alternate source of water. In my mind then and in my mind today, you cannot resolve one emergency by creating three others. So, so again, we were faced with the decision of if we implement prior appropriation 100%, like it's called for, then those municipalities that are junior, we're gonna have to cut them off. That means hospitals are gonna go without water. That means households are gonna go without water. Forget about golf courses, we didn't care about right, that. Right. We cared about the public health emergency we'd be creating. So we decided to exercise enforcement discretion and not cut off those junior municipal users. We understood what we were doing. We also understood that in other Western states that have had to do this already, a person knows what it means to be a junior. In Texas at that time, we had municipalities that had junior right. water right, and they didn't understand what that meant. Right. We got sued by the Farm Bureau correctly 
And they won appropriately, saying, you did not honor prior appropriation. Yeah. And because you did not honor prior appropriation, you devalued a senior water right that could have been marketed to meet that demand. We actually have provisions in the water code that allow for those transactions to take place during an emergency. Right. The problem is they've never been used in Texas. Yeah. It exists in statute, but it's never been done. We didn't have a choice. The Farm Bureau sued. They won. That enforcement discretion can no longer be exercised by the commission. So a junior water right holder that's a municipality today in Texas better get busy working on increasing the reliability and resilience of their water supply. So um, just a little bit more about that. So, and there's, you know, this is public knowledge, no reason why I can't say it. So this is Dow Chemical, right? And they are down at the end of the river, you know, near the coast, and they're worried about running out of water and they issue this priority call. And so TCU, at TCU, you have to cut off some other users and the Farm Bureau says, calls foul. And uh, prior to this, years before, we had something in place called the Wagstaff Act, where you had the protection of these, we had these priority of uses, uh, kind of like the Rio Grande. Municipal users were first, probably an ag was near the bottom or one of the, the less, the ones below, uh, municipal use and the farm bureau said no that doesn't exist anymore and so you know we, we think you made a mistake now one thing that which you just hit which I want to make sure that people think about is um, you know the cities were not preparing for these droughts the way they should have been because uh, they were still in the mode of the Wagstaff Act being there which it wasn't thinking that somebody's going to come to their rescue, they're not going to get shut off during a bad drought. And so they hadn't been doing what they needed to do. And that's, I think, one of the really good outcomes of that whole incident is it was a wake-up call. We ain't going to, you know, look, the law doesn't say, you know, your use is superior to ag anymore or some other use. Um, you know, it's all about prior appropriation and your permit and, you know, you know, it's priority date and all that stuff. And so cities, you know, you, you better start preparing for the next big drought or drought record or something because, because uh, you know, we've, we've got to, you know, go with the way things are now as opposed to the way that might have been 20 or 30 years ago. I, you're 100% correct. That's exactly what occurred. That was exactly the mentality. Here's the irony. And, and, and that kind of it brings it full circle, doesn't it? The Wagstaff Act was vacated by Senate Bill 1 right. with the creation of the junior provision, which right. you and I have talked devalues water. Yeah. It did create a mechanism for an emergency transfer of water. But it also mandated that if, for example, a, a municipality wants an emergency authorization, reauthorization of water, reallocation of water, then it's, there's a provision, 11-139 of the Texas Water Code says, you can do that, you can go to the commission and ask for that emergency authorization, but you have to pay just compensation for the entity that's losing the water to meet your emergency. We have never done that in Texas before. If we had an active market, if we had a better market, if we had a better valuation of water, if we had a better way of understanding how to properly value water, we could arrive at those decisions and appropriately implement what the law says. Unfortunately, we don't have them, and that also impacts the water market itself. Right, right. I wonder, I mean, you know, hmm. 
So you'd have to figure out the the proper value of it during that drought, that Correct. emergency, right? Um, it's yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, and I guess there are no rules still set up to do that, or so we just kind of, if it ever's triggered, uh, somebody's going to have to be kind of making it up as they go along to figure out how to do it. And Kind of like the place we were at in 2011. I mean, look, when I was water master and there was a shortage of water and I got a call, I knew what to do that day. The other water masters in the other areas know what to do that day. Yeah. We did not know what to do outside of a water master area, and it took us more than 40 days to determine how to respond to the first priority call. We got better at it, yeah. and, and I think the TCQ is much better at it now than we were back then. If somebody carries it through on a full-on Section 11.139 request for an emergency reappropriation of water, we don't have rules, we don't have that experience, that is going to also limit or extend the time in which you make a decision. And when you're in an emergency, the last thing you can afford is more time. I wonder what, well, what's it gonna take for the state to, to, to get those rules in place? I mean, I guess they're... Well, the TCEQ, to their credit, uh, identified this is one of their major issues, seeking advice from the um, from the legislature as part of its sunset review process, and so hopefully through those discussions, you arrive at a good mechanism that one protects a property, a person's property interest in water, upholds the value of that water, and creates a mechanism on how to rapidly do an emergency reappropriation of it, consistent with what eleven one thirty nine uh, calls for. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're coming up on an hour here. Um, so let me ask you, anything else about water markets you want to make sure that you, you tell us before we, we wrap it up? Make sure that you understand what you're buying. Make sure you understand the process of how to move it from who owns it and the purpose of use to the way you want it uh, for your own purposes. Protect it. And above all, don't rest on the fact that those four corners of that water right are going to be all that you're interested in. Make sure that you understand the resiliency of the source from which you're buying. And that is critically more important in Texas now on water markets that are based on groundwater use. Regrettably, in Texas, we still have planning mechanisms, the desired future conditions, yeah. where their principal... Um, End goal is continued depletion of our groundwater sources. Right. You can't continue that forever. Right. Right. Uh, boy, this has been great. Uh, Carlos, so I'm going to tell you uh, thank you very much for meeting with me today and talking about water, particularly uh, water markets in the Rio Grande. And so uh, you've got a website, I think. You want to tell listeners how they can find it? Absolutely. It's Thank you for that. It's R S A H. To o, it's the letter O, not the number, dot com. Carlos, uh, thank you for joining us today. Th- thanks for inviting. I very much enjoyed it. This has been Talk Plus Water, and my guest today was Carlos Rubenstein, principal of R-S-A-H-U-O. I, had it, I didn't change it here. I had it wrong still, but I said it right. Correct. Um, an Austin, Texas-based consulting firm that provides expertise on environmental activities primarily related to consultation assistance and advice regarding water resource policy permits, projects, and compliance.
Uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and say that if you enjoyed this episode of Talk Less Water, please let us know by giving it a like. And uh, that's pretty much it. My name's Todd Votler. Let's talk water again soon.